Welcome to the Physio Perspective Podcast. We are physical therapy students simplifying sports, injuries, and the human body. The purpose of the show is for those who are interested in different sports injuries but don't necessarily know much about them. Welcome. Welcome. This is the Priest Thanksgiving episode of the Physio Perspective. We hope everyone gets a chance to spend time with their loved ones, uh, enjoy time off from school or work. Um, I know Brett and I are certainly excited to have a few days off, spend some time with family. Uh, also, right now, to do our Physio Perspective podcast. Yeah, so today, betcha. we are talking about Russell Wilson, Kawhi Leonard, and Major League Baseball. Awesome. So uh, let's just start off with uh, Russell Wilson. He actually had his jaw realigned after a heavy hit to the chin uh, two weeks ago, was it now? Yeah, a little bit ago. Yeah, um, so on the play, uh, Wilson was staying in the pocket when linebacker Carlos Dansby came roaring in and actually delivered a high hit on Wilson up into the chin area as he was releasing the football. Uh, So, Fernando, can you just go a little bit more into that for me? Yeah, this is kind of a heavy case. We can talk about it a little bit more. Um, So Russell, he had... He was on a liquid diet for a few days, and he had to has, have his jaw reset. So kind of scary stuff right there. Um, on the other side, uh, Dansby was fined $18,000 by the NFL, so pretty heavy fine. Um, and this is where things start to get hairy. So Wilson was sent off by referee Walt Anderson. So this means that Wilson was required to miss at minimum one play um, because of the hit near the head. So, of course, the telecast was following Wilson to the sidelines, where he was asked a few questions by the ATC athletic trainers. And he briefly, and I mean briefly, ducked under the tent. I know NFL has new tents on the sideline to protect the players' um, safety and uh, um, to protect them. So he ducked under the tent and for a matter of seconds and returned to the field on the next play. So the Seahawks are actually under investigation for their management with the NFL's concussion protocol and they're at risk for a hefty fine and may even lose future draft picks. So we'll see how that turns out. Um, so there are two things that can happen in the case of a hit to the head where the player is still responsive, but a concussion is suspected, um, much like what happened in Wilson's case. So first of all, referees, they can send the player off to the sidelines to get examined. And second of all, as of 2012, independent athletic training spotters, ATC spotters they're called, have been hired by the NFL and their their job is to monitor the game in real time and on replays. So they kind of watch for heavy hits to the head and neck region and if they see it they can um, flag the tape um, to review it later. Uh, if a player has you know symptoms in the locker room they can kind of look at that and see what happened and um, they can also in the game they can call to the bench to speak with the ATC physician or neurotrauma consultant on the sidelines, someone with medical experience. And um, they're also, it's good because the ATCs on the sideline, they might be busy working with another injured athlete so they can call down and they can flag it and they, they have definitely have eyes on the, on the game at all times. Gotcha. Yep, and then actually in 2015, ATC spotters can call a medical timeout. So that's new as of 2015, a couple years ago right now. And these spotters are, are experts with special qualifications. So they they must have a minimum of 10 years experience as an athletic trainer. They must have major college or pro sports, excuse me, experience, but cannot ever have been employed as a head athletic trainer by an NFL team, nor employed in any position by an NFL team in the past 20 years. So these guys have, you know, little to do with the NFL. 
Um, and this ensures that there's no vested interest and that their sole focus is on the player's health, which is important. Um, so the referee, referees also have a protocol, and if they see a hit to the head with a potential concussion, they have to send them to the sidelines. So they, they also have a power in protecting the players. And this, is, this came up, Russell spoke after the game, how he was upset that Anderson sent him to the sideline because he, he thought he was fine. Yeah, so uh, it's really interesting to bring up a lot of uh, specific criteria where it's just trying to eliminate any biases. But I guess, Fernando, what are your thoughts on the neutral parties being able to monitor players who show signs of concussions? Yeah, that's a good question. So in my mind, we have to support the referee's decision in this situation. Um, first and foremost is player's health. And if there's any sign of concussion, a player should definitely receive that necessary medical attention. Um, and this, this goes back to our previous podcast when we were talking about the first step in concussions is recognizing that an athlete might have a concussion. Um, these can go easily undetected. Uh, players try to play it off. You know, They're under these masks where you can't even see their faces sometimes, and they, just, they move on to the next play. And you know, We talked about that in our last podcast. You guys can check that out. Um, but we also talked about the possibility and dangers of sub- subconcussive impacts. So subconcussive impacts are blows to the head that leave an athlete symptom-free, which does not mean there's no damage done. So these these blows just aren't strong enough to cause a change in the athlete's medical presentation. Um, So definitely important to think about. And, and, you know, subconcussive impact can be a header in soccer, you know, a small football collision, and, you know, even being checked into the boards in hockey. So, yeah, so pretty dense. More about concussions there in Wilson's case. We hope he he gets better soon and um, hopefully – that thing sorts out with the Seahawks. Yeah, it's really interesting just to follow that. Um, did you say that they did get fined already, or they're no nope, under investigation? Okay. So that that should be coming out soon. So yeah, we'll have to, to keep our eye on that and just give you guys an update as soon as we find out. Mm-hmm. Um, so going on to our next topic, uh, it's it's Kawhi Leonard. He actually has a something called a tendinopathy. Uh, it's on his right quadriceps tendon, basically. Uh, so yeah, Kawhi Leonard. He's a basketball player for the San Antonio Spurs. He's been out the entire season with an injury to his quads. Uh, the quads, or the quadricep group, is a group of four muscles, basically, that's located on the front of your thigh. And uh, like I said before, more specifically, though, Kawhi has a right quadriceps tendinopathy, but he is expected to return pretty soon. Cool. So what? So we learned about different tendinopathies earlier in the semester in one of our classes. Uh, could you go into some more details there about the tendinopathy? Yeah, so I don't know I don't know too many details on Kawhi Leonard's specific tendinopathy, but there is three different stages of tendon pathology. Uh, the first being a reactive tendinopathy, where basically that's just a non-inflammatory uh, response in the cell cellular matrix layers of the of the muscle. Um, it occurs with acute tension or compressive overload, uh, and then basically the short-term adaptation is to overload or the short-term adaptation to overload that thickens the tendon, reduces stress, and increases the stiffness. Uh, there is actually the potential for this type of uh, tendinopathy to revert back to normal if the overload is sufficiently reduced or if there's sufficient time between loading sessions. Um, and basically that just kind of, you know, you're just trying to work that tendon back to, to, to the norm, mm-hmm. to where it was before. Um, but if it does get worse, the next stage is called tendon disrepair. Uh, it's basically just an attempt at tendon healing, which is very similar to reactive tendinopathy, but it basically has greater matrix breakdown. Um, and then the tendons themselves in tendon disrepair, they're thick with more localized changes in one area. 
Uh, and then if it gets even worse after that, uh, it's called degenerative tendinopathy. And basically there's areas of cell death due to apoptosis, which is just, it's controlled cell death. The body's just kind of telling those cells to die. Um, but yeah, it's areas of cell death, uh, trauma or exhaustion that are apparent in the tendon. Um, there's also areas of acellularity that have been described. Um, and large areas of the matrix are disordered with, and filled with vessels, matrix breakdown, and there's very little collagen that's left in that tendon. Um, and then basically at this point, there's little capacity for reversibility of pathological changes at this stage. So once you're kind of there, you're kind of stuck. Yeah, yeah, we talked about that in class, definitely. A good summary of the tendinopathy stages. So what would the rehab process look like, thinking that Leonard's tendinopathy is chronic? Yeah, so for chronic tendinopathies, uh, just to give a really brief overview, uh, the rehabilitation process for physical therapists mostly will involve adding loads to make the tendon as a whole stronger, um, but there really isn't too much that can be done about that weak spot in the tendon, the actual tendinopathy itself. Uh, but the good news here, though, is that uh, Kawhi's injury is, or with Kawhi Leonard's injury, is that uh, most tendinopathies are definitely not career-ending. Um, but if it is a, and if it is a chronic condition for him, uh, more aggressive treatments can be sought out. So. We're hoping the best for Kawhi. You betcha. Last, we have a little Major League Baseball. I know we jumped into this thing a little after the baseball season ended, so we're gonna we're gonna jump back and talk some baseball. This actually isn't injury related, but you know we gotta have a little fun you too. Bet. So, um, the Baseball Writers Association of America released the 2018 National Baseball Hall of Fame ballot a couple days ago. So I thought it'd be a little fun to play Who You Got game. So this class is dense and includes some of some controversial names for sure as players who played during the steroid era begin to trickle onto the ballots. But here's a complete list. Um, so a little bit extensive here, but I'll run through it. Barry Bonds, Chris Carpenter, Roger Clemens, Johnny Damon, Vladimir Guerrero, Levon Hernandez, Trevor Hoffman, Orlando Hudson, Aubrey Huff, Jason Isringhausen, Andrew Jones, Chipper Jones, Jeff Kent, Carlos Lee, Brad Lidge, Edgar Martinez, Hideki Matsui, Fred McGriff, Kevin Millwood, Jamie Moyer, Mike Mussina, Manny Ramirez, Scott Rowland, Johan Santana, Kurt Schilling, Gary Sheffield, Sammy Sosa, Jim Tomey, Omar Vizquel, Billy Wagner, Larry Walker, Kerry Wood, and Carlos Zambrano. <laughs> that's that's quite the extensive list, Fernando. Um, <laughs> Very long. But... Well, we'll start with you, actually. Uh, sure, sure. Who, who do you have? Yeah, in, in your... yeah I'm going to take three. So I'm going to take Trevor Hoffman, first and foremost. Uh, I know last year he missed the ballot by a mere five votes, like oh, wow. a couple percentage point. And this will be his third time on the ballot, but I, I really think it's time for him. He was a closer for the Padres for the vast majority of his career. I know sp spent some time in Milwaukee, had a chance to see him play at Miller Park. He holds the NL record with 601 saves in his career. Um, you know, he's lights out for most of his career. I remember Hell's Bells, he'd come in. It was a big, big event. Always seeing Hoffman come in and close a game, and he had that heavy changeup. Um, I think it's time for Trevor to be recognized. Does um, Does Mariano Rivera have the most most saves in the MLB? I believe so. Sure? I believe so. We'll have to fact check that. Yeah, we'll, we'll <laughs> fact check that later. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think he does, but okay. I'm not 100% sure Yeah, about that, that sounds right. He was yeah. also a stud pitcher, so. Yep, yeah. for the Yankees. So next I have Chipper Jones. He's one of my favorite players to watch growing up. Power average. He batted 303 from the left and 304 from the right in his 19-year yeah. career. So he's a switch hitter. Um, he played all of his seasons with the Atlanta Braves. Um, definitely puts him in the conversation for the greatest switch hitter of all time. I know right there with Mickey Mantle, he was also a switch hitter. Um, and 
you know, people say that hitting a baseball is one of the hardest things to do in all sports. Yeah, try that hitting that baseball from both sides <laughs> of the plate. In my mind, he has to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Totally agree. Yeah. So lastly, Vlad Guerrero. Loved watching him. One of the best arms in the game. The game has seen in the outfield for sure. Um, he missed last year's ballot by 3% of the votes. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll always remember him as a guy with a cannon who could hit a ball anywhere near home plate. Free swinger, just swing at things and hit it hard. Um, and I, I think it's only a matter of time before he gets in. 318 average, lifetime, 449 home runs, 2,590 hits in 16 seasons. So a pretty nice career for Vlad. Yeah, so uh, definitely hard to argue with uh, those stats. <laughs> I would certainly agree with you on all of your picks. I could definitely see all of those guys getting in, especially considering how close they were in previous years. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I have to give my little biases here. So I'm a Cubs <laughs> fan. So I would definitely say Sammy Sosa should make it. Uh, maybe Kerry Wood and Carlos Zambrano. Probably not. <laughs> no chance. <laughs> but uh, but uh, Sosa in particular, he was he was very entertaining to watch. Um, but but overall, I just kind of like the fact that the Baseball Hall of Fame is a little more difficult to get inducted into compared to like the Basketball Hall of Fame. Uh, it certainly just adds a lot of prestige to the individuals who actually make it in, which is which is a really nice uh, accolade I think for a lot of those players. Um, I do have a hard time seeing guys like Barry Bonds or Roger Clemens making in this year just because there's a lot of question marks surrounding their names. Yeah. Um, but, you know, over time, maybe possible that the voters kind of have a change of heart and uh, vote them in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're going to leave you with the final quote here. Um, one of the names on the ballot this year is Johnny Damon, and he has an interesting quote that I I agree with, honestly. Um, it's, it's a touchy subject with, with the PEDs. You know, I, I can see both sides, but I, I lean towards the non-PED side for sure. Um, but So here's what Johnny said. He says he's played his entire 18-year career without ever using performance-enhancing drugs and that his PED abstinence is the reason he's not playing today. So that's a pretty strong quote from Johnny Damon. I know taking these PEDs it helps the recovery process. And if you're on the field, you can hit home runs. And if you're missing games because of injury, you're on the bench. You can't hit home runs from the bench. So I think you know that plays a factor into it. So. I think that is honesty and integrity here too. Is it might win over some voters in the end. So maybe yeah. it'll it'll pay off. You know, and maybe not necessarily having those stats, but just being an sure. an honest and humble guy that can certainly get you some sure. votes. For yeah, the Hall of Fame, we'll see. So. I know he won a World Series ring with the Red Sox. So yeah, class act. Yeah, definitely. And that's our show for today, episode three of the Physio Perspective Podcast. We thank you for joining us. Happy holidays coming up. Um, We'll listen to you next time, episode four. Happy Thanksgiving. Gobble, gobble.